I probably worked with somewhere in the vicinity of 70 professional triathletes on their race fueling. That Triathlon Show, episode 40. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and I'll keep this intro very short and sweet because the interview that we have on tap for today is pretty long. It's with Jesse Kropolnicki, head coach and founder of QT2 Systems and a lot of other brands underneath QT2 Systems, in particular, thecorediet.com. And that is what we'll talk about today. You'll learn how you should fuel your Ironman and half Ironman races, what kind of fueling you should do in training to support that race fueling to allow you to handle what you need to do on race day, and how you should do with your day-to-day nutrition to complement that fueling in training and racing and, and what you need to do that because obviously there are things like body composition and uh, and a lot of other things recovery your immune function and so on that are affected a lot by your nutrition so it's a very difficult equation to solve but uh, jesse and his team at the core diet has been doing it for a long long time very successfully so uh, i found this interview incredibly insightful Let's just dive right in and have a listen to it. All right, on today's interview on That Triathlon Show, I'm talking to Jesse Kropolnicki from QT2 Systems and The Core Diet and from a lot of other places because this man has a lot of things going on. Jesse, welcome to the show, man. Thanks. No worries. Happy to be here. Yeah, so as I alluded to there, you, you're doing a lot of things in triathlon and, and endurance sports in general. So can you just tell us a little bit more about your background? Yeah, sure. Just a little bit about my background. I'm actually an engineer by education and uh, got into triathlon and endurance sports in 97 and uh, kind of accelerated from there. Prior to that, I was into uh, weightlifting and was quite a bit bigger than I was in my triathlon life and uh, really picked up a lot of nutrition knowledge and background really from the weightlifting days and kind of carried that into triathlon. So you know, where we stand today is, um, you know, the QT2 Systems kind of family of endurance preparation businesses includes a brand called Outrival Racing, which is a triathlon preparation brand, a brand called the Cycling Formula, which is cycling specific, a brand called uh, the Run Formula, which is run specific. Of course, the QT2 brand, which is real detailed triathlon preparation for high level athletes. You know, we coach uh, 35 professionals there qualified 37 athletes for Kona just last year as an example. And our last brand is is the Core Diet. And our, the Core Diet is our nutrition-specific business or brand where we have registered dietitians that work with endurance athletes exclusively on a daily basis. So that kind of brings us all the way up to speed here. Yeah. And uh, one thing that I just thinking off my feet here, you also have a book that is uh, reasonably new about endurance for or nutrition, I should say, for endurance athletes. Yes, this is true. Yes, this was released in uh, in January. It's the endurance training cookbook and and really, really covers, you know, 50 percent of the book is around how to properly approach 
race day fueling and day-to-day nutrition as an endurance athlete, the other half of the book is recipes. And they're really practical, good quality, clean recipes that fit the principles of the core diet. Books available, obviously, on the core diet website and also um, on Amazon. Yeah, and that's a perfect segue into today's topic, which uh, I've been mentioning in the intro to the listeners. We'll talk mostly about uh, nutrition on race day, in training, and in your day-to-day life. So how do you tend to start these conversations when you go over the theory about the core diet? Is, does it start from race day or does it start from the day-to-day nutrition? You know, I would start with the day-to-day because that that really is your foundation as an athlete upon which almost everything else is built, whether you're talking about the training itself, overall life health, immunity, or race fueling. So it, it kind of starts the day-to-day, but you've kind of split it up the right way. You know, even with the core diet, our services are really split in two. You kind of have the day-to-day nutrition services that's kind of how to eat as an athlete between workouts to optimize recovery, enhance immunity, cover from training sessions so you can apply more training load. And then there's the fueling piece of it. That's what you do immediately prior to a session or race, during a session or race, or immediately after. So my suggestion would be to start with the the day-to-day nutrition stuff. Okay, so let's start there then. So how should we as triathletes fuel? And are there differences depending on demographics and uh, the level at which you train and race? I wouldn't say the the level. Um, There's definitely differences based upon kind of the body composition of the athlete and where the athlete wants to go. Any athlete who's serious about improving performance should be serious about their day-to-day nutrition and overall nutrient density. You know, but how they kind of tweak that day-to-day nutrition is mostly going to be dependent upon body composition and and where they need or want to go. So what I mean by that, and I outline this in, in the book as well, is, you know, for triathlon and really every sport, there's an optimal, what I call lean BMI for that sport. So let me lay the groundwork for a couple things here. I'll probably spend about five minutes talking this through. I just think it's a good backdrop. So you kind of have the body fat percentage of the athlete, and then you have what's called BMI. And most people have heard of BMI, but realize that body fat and BMI are two separate things. So BMI is body mass index. This is the thing that when you go to the doctor, they usually put you on a scale and they measure your height and they pump out the BMI. So The BMI is really a measure of how much you weigh relative to your height. What it doesn't know and what it doesn't do is differentiate between muscle content and fat content, which obviously for the triathletes, that's an important thing to understand, right? So the kind of ultimate bookend example here is when you looked at Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was Mr. Olympia, he probably had a lean BMI of 29, which is very, very high. And honestly, on the BMI scale, it says you're morbidly obese. But the reality is that Arnold Schwarzenegger was any, couldn't be anything further from obese. He was just very, very muscular. So he had a body fat percentage of 5% or maybe 4% on, on uh, competition So obviously BMI for the athlete isn't a good measure on its own. However, when you combine the metric of BMI with body fat percentage, it really tells you a lot about the athlete's muscle content. Okay. So the example here is if I have an athlete that let's say it's a male athlete that is 17% body fat that we believe we can get down to 5% body fat. What we do is we adjust their current weight, assuming we will get to 5%. So let me run through an example here. Let's say the athlete weighs 150 pounds. 
pounds, just to use simple numbers. Athlete weighs 150 pounds. Um, athlete is presently 15% body fat, and we believe we can get this athlete to 5% body fat. That means we're looking at a short-term, let's say, weight loss of just fat of 10%. 10% of 150 pounds is 15 pounds. So therefore, the race day body weight over a short-term period for this athlete is going to be 135 pounds at that 5%. So we kind of assume we're going to get to that 5% body fat number over a period of time just by losing body fat through manipulating the diet. Now, of course, we never want to lose weight too quickly. We don't want to lose more than a pound per week. Otherwise, it would become detrimental to both the athlete's immunity and training session. So assuming we have the 15 weeks to get to that body weight, that would be our race day body weight. But where we get kind of um, more valuable here is we take that 135 pound assumed race day body weight, which is what I call the lean adjusted body weight, and then we calculate BMI. So what is the kind of equation for BMI? BMI is the body weight of the athlete in pounds multiplied by 703, which is just a constant, divided by the athlete's height in inches square, okay? that gives you the BMI. So now BMI tells you a lot more about the athlete's muscle content because I've taken off the body fat. It tells me only about the muscle content for the athlete, which is now, again, much more valuable to the athlete or the coach to understand where the athlete's limiters may lie. So what we find is that every sport kind of has an optimal lean adjusted BMI, meaning that every sport really has a different requirement or component of strength that's required from the athlete, kind of at an optimal level. So what we find for triathlon is that most females need to have a BMI, a lean adjusted BMI of around a 20 and males around a 21. That's just the, the kind of the sweet spot. Now, to show the differences between sports, we find that marathon, for example, is more like 18 for the females and 19 for the males. Obviously, running is a lot less uh, strength governed. It, it requires a lot less muscle content than the sport of triathlon. If I looked at another sport, let's say like rowing, those lean, lean BMI numbers would be a lot higher. So as we talk about day-to-day -day nutrition, I think it's important to understand those concepts. You kind of have short-term race weight, which we manipulate body fat percentage to get to over a short period of time. And then we kind of have long-term race weight where we're trying to get to those optimal lean BMIs and remove strength as a limiter. Or conversely, if an athlete comes in at 22 or 23, who's a male lean adjusted BMI, they probably have more muscle than what's required for the sport of triathlon. Therefore, strength certainly is a limiter and actually the muscle content is more weight than the athlete needs to carry around for the sport of triathlon. It actually slows them down. So those are kind of the two ways I like to think about body composition and kind of where the day-to-day -day nutrition steps in. So just a couple of things here in the formula for BMI. Can you repeat that? Because I seem to remember having learned another formula in uh, in school, which was your height in meters squared divided by your weight. No, the other way around, of course, uh, your, your weight divided by your height in meters squared. But you had a constant in the formula as well. So uh, yeah, now I have two formulas to work with. So I don't know if uh, my, my learnings have been incorrect or can you clarify that? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I mean, obviously, if we change input units here to kilograms and, and meters or centimeters, uh, of course, then the constant changes. So, you know, I, I just gave the imperial uh, version of that formula, which is the constant of 703 multiplied by the weight in pounds divided by the height in inches squared. So if we switch to if we switch to metric, 
Obviously, that constant needs to change. Let me see if I can quickly find that. I would assume that the formula that I've learned is correct and that constant has been, uh, mm. it has arisen from the fact that it has been converted into being used with imperial units. So that's correct. That's exactly right. So I think the formula in metric is actually weight in kilograms divided by height in meters squared. Exactly. Yep. yep, I agree. Okay, and uh, then the second thing was, uh, so to give some reference on the body fat percentages and the BMIs that typical age groupers have, let's say when they get into triathlon and a couple of years down the line, but before being like, you know, Kona fit, what would you say is the norm here? Yeah, I mean, obviously, optimal body fat percentage is going to be dependent on gender in a, in a big way. And also, I'm not talking optimal here, but but just so people, if they don't have a clue about where they are at the moment, what is a typical triathlete, not yeah. considering if they are optimal, but just getting into the sport or at some point yeah. earlier in their triathlon career? If I kind of look at the current, you know, let's say demographic of triathletes, not, you know, super high end athletes or or beginners, most males are, are probably sitting around 12, 13 percent. Most females are, are probably in the, you know, 18 to 22 percent range. Obviously, there's going to be extremes in both directions, but that's probably about where most uh, people sit, which, which presents a great opportunity for many athletes, you know, removing body fat that isn't required for health is going to be a massive impact on race day performance. How much? I mean, you know, let's use our example here. If I have a male that's at 12%, we believe given the age and demographic, they can get to 6% or 7%. That's a 5% loss. Again, if they weigh 150 pounds, that's seven or eight pounds. Um, seven or eight pounds for a half Ironman distance event is worth about seven or eight minutes. For Ironman distance event, you know, it's worth in that 14 to 16 minute range, which is huge, huge. Yeah, definitely. And uh, to think about how much money you can spend on lighter components for your bike, but uh, probably the low-hanging fruit there is, uh, for most, their body fat percentage, because there's usually something that you can you can shed on that front. All right, so we have covered the basis here. So what then do you do in your day-to-day -day nutrition to, to get to those more optimal BMIs and, and body fat percentages that you talked about? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, when we founded the Core Diet over 10 years ago, we tried to put together something that was easy to follow for athletes. And, and why is that? Because triathletes have an infinite number of things that they could spend time, money and stress on both in their day to day life and in their triathlon preparation. So, you know, I came from a place where I used to track every protein, carbohydrate or fat that I put in my body every single day for years. <laughs> and that obviously takes a tremendous amount of stress, time and effort. That's not stress, time and effort I think triathletes should be spending. And there's probably better places to be spending that, whether it's other restorative techniques, training load itself, or, or more sleep, right? So the core diet is really focused on the core foods. So the core foods are foods such as lean meats, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, and dairy. So you'll notice what's not in there is grains or refined sugars at all. So the core foods are really those foods that have significant nutrient density, um, but also keep blood sugar very, very stable throughout the day. And these are really the foods that the human body was kind of meant to eat and evolved on over many, many years. So, you know, for the triathlete that is training a good chunk of many other days, let's say I have a more serious triathlete that's training 15 or 20 hours a week, 
you know, on average, they're spending three to four hours per day training. Obviously, during their training, they're not getting significant nutrient density because they're focused more on the performance fuels required to have a good quality training session. Therefore, they have more limited periods to get in the nutrient density that they require. Now, on the flip side, or I shouldn't say on the flip side, or combined with that, these athletes are also applying more training stress, therefore require more nutrient density. So the core diet kind of forces or encourages athletes to focus on those very nutrient-dense foods during any period where they're not working out. Instead, saving the grains and refined sugars for during the workouts themselves where they serve a specific purpose to fuel that training session. You know, what I like to say there is that extraordinary feats such as triathlon or triathlon training require these extraordinary fuels like grains or refined sugars, things that we didn't have around a couple hundred years ago and, and weren't part of the human diet. So what are some potential negative outcomes of not getting nutrients dense diets when you're just fueling in your day to day? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, comes back to the basics of triathlon prep. And, you know, the buzzword here is the super compensation cycle, right? I mean, that's what every athlete is is trying to achieve. They're trying to break down their body with a difficult training session, do everything in their power to recover quickly so they, they can do it again. And the athlete who is able to apply the most training stress over the longest period of time is the athlete who's going to make the most progress. So nutrition is a big piece of that super compensation during the recovery phase of it. After I've done the damage during the workout and hopefully provided good fueling during the workout session to do more damage, you know, the clock is ticking and the race is on. How quickly can I recover? So if you don't have optimal nutrient density between workout sessions, those recovery periods are going to take longer. And therefore, number one, you're not going to be able to apply as much training load over the longer period of time. Number two, it's going to be a detriment to the immunity of the athlete they're more likely to get sick maybe more times over the year and therefore again apply less training load because when they're sick they can't apply the training load so you know those are a couple of of the key areas that that really play into this and why it is so so critical and uh, yeah and i want to em emphasize that the uh, immune system and how important that is because that's something that i notice a lot in the athletes that i coach that the ones that never seem to get sick how even though they're not doing anything extraordinary on any given day but just that consistency they can put in on every single day except rest days of course going out and performing being able to do that and not having those sick leaves in between is definitely something that in the long run is going to have a compound effect on how much you you develop so that's a key point i think that needs to be emphasized what about a macronutrients and and ratios do you have any guidelines for that for the listeners Yeah, yeah, and I'll, I'll, that's a perfect question because I'll elaborate a little bit more on some of the specifics of the core diet. So I kind of outlined the core foods. Those are the foods you're focused on during any period between workout sessions. But we also include some workout, what we call workout windows. And this is the one hour prior to a workout session where the athlete can have some grains or refined sugars because there it serves a specific purpose to pre-fuel the workout session to come. Then we have a, a workout window that's post-workout that's as long as the workout was. So the logic there is if I have a three-hour ride, I have three hours post-workout to have some grains of refined sugars. Now, when an athlete fuels well during a workout, they usually replace about 50% of the caloric expenditure during the session. The next 25%, they do if they do a good job, they replace with their post-workout recovery drink, which should happen very quickly after the workout session itself. 
that leaves another 25% that needs to be replaced. So that quantity is obviously gonna be a lot larger if it's a longer workout session. Therefore, we need a longer period to replace it. So those are the workout windows that we use. So how this ties into your question is, if you look at a typical day, that's just a recovery day, let's say there's no workout session at all, there's therefore no workout windows to have all that additional grain or refined sugar, additional carbohydrate. Therefore, the athlete is focused all on the core foods, the lean meats, fruits, vegetables, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, and lean dairy, which tend to be lower in carbohydrate. Therefore, the ratio from carbohydrates on a day like that may only be like 35 or 40 percent just because there is no workouts. It kind of takes care of itself. Conversely, on a day that's a five-hour, uh, let's say, ride with a run off the bike or something more significant like that, you now have the pre-workout window, you have the during-workout fueling, you have the post-workout window. Suddenly, the carbohydrate percentage may be 60 to 70 percent on a day like that. So the beauty of the core diet is that it kind of scales the macronutrients automatically without you thinking about it as long as you stick to those windows. So overall on a, on a recovery day or a very light training day, you may see 35 to 40% of the caloric intake from carbohydrates. You may see the fat content be around 30% and the remainder about 30% from protein. On a heavier training day, those ratios shift totally. You may see 60 to 70% from carbohydrate. You may see 20% or 15% from protein and about the same percentages from fat. So that's kind of how the macronutrients adjust themselves. But again, the beauty of this is you don't have to really think about it. For, for those athletes who do want to track macronutrients very carefully, let's say it's before a key race or just to kind of get calibrated on what they're doing, if you go to the app store, the Apple, the iPhone app store, you can search the core diet macronutrient calculator. And we actually have a free calculator there that allows athletes to put in their training volumes, put in their body composition metrics, and it gives you a customized macronutrient profile based on your objectives for not only muscle content, but fat content, you know, caloric expenditures based on training load. And a lot of the things that I've talked about here today already. Mm, that's perfect. And we'll link to that in the show notes, of course, so that people can go and have a look at that. Anything else that on the day-to-day -day side of things? One follow-up question on this, by the way. In your one-hour pre-workout window, I'm just thinking that I usually, I might have a banana or something one hour before a workout to fuel up on carbs but uh, usually i try to have that like the one hour is my my limit so it might be an hour and a half before actually just to make sure that i can digest that and, and absorb the energy but uh, i might not have the, the right knowledge about how quickly the right kind of food is digested and absorbed in your body. So do you have any, anything specific on that note? Yeah, yeah. The glycemic response of a higher glycemic carbohydrate, like a grain, is going to be about an hour. It peaks out at maybe a half hour, 40 minutes, and then starts to drop off after that. So that's why we use the one-hour window. Now, depending on the type of workout session it is and the particular athlete, the fat, fiber, or protein content in that pre-workout meal is going to need to be kind of looked at a little bit more carefully. So for many athletes, a banana is fine within the one hour window if it's a run no problem other items that you could think about is just a simple granola bar could be just a gel 15 minutes before could be a bottle of sport drink so all refined sugars that are very high in carbohydrates the type or or exact choice of that stuff again is going to be dependent on the gi distress for the particular athlete but what I can tell you is that that product should be very carbohydrate focused. The banana is a great idea. It obviously has potassium, has carbohydrate, very light in fat, fiber, or protein. But the main thing here is to generally avoid fat, fiber, or protein, particularly if it's a run during that one hour window. Why is that? Because fat fibers and proteins 
tend to dilute the blood sugar response of any carbohydrate that you may have, which is why if you look at the core foods that you're eating on a day-to-day basis between workouts, most of those foods have a significant amount of fat, fiber, and protein, which is why they help keep blood sugar stable between workouts. That's exactly what you want to do to maintain body composition. So, you know, for the exact reason why fat, fiber, protein is great in the between workout eating um, is the exact reason why it's not so good pre-workout or during workout because it slows digestion. It's the last thing that you want just prior to a workout session or during the workout session. And that same principle applies uh, right away after a harder or longer workout as well, doesn't it, for your recovery drink or whatever you have that you don't want. Uh, you might want protein in it, but but not fat because it slows down the absorption of the carbs. Is that correct? That's exactly right. I mean, you know, these days you see a lot of athletes post-workout putting into uh, a Nutribullet or, or, or Ninja or whatever the, the, the fat uh, blender is of the week. But a lot of athletes are putting, you know, kale, peanut butter, yogurt. I mean, you name it, everything but the kitchen sink into the blender as they're post-workout recovery drink. Now, sure, they've made a great nutrient-dense smoothie, but it's not optimal for post-workout recovery. We really do want to keep fat fiber, in particular, out of that post-workout recovery drink because it slows down digestion. We want to get blood sugar up quickly here. So mostly focused on clean carbohydrate that's very high glycemic, good quality, easily digested protein source, somewhere in the three to one, four to one, five to one ratio of carbohydrate to protein um, is perfect. So there's a lot of great products out there these days that'll do that. The product that we're using most right now is the clean athlete uh, recovery drink. It's you know four to one ratio, has nothing but really what you need in a post-workout recovery drink. So Perfect. So I think that we covered really well uh, the uh, day-to-day, or is there anything you want to add on that front before we move on to the within <coughs> training? Yeah, I think, I mean, we covered most of the details. The only other thing that I'll mention is I've kind of outlined the core diet principles and approach with core foods during non-workout periods, the pre-workout window, post-workout window, post-workout recovery drink. That is all great for maintaining body composition and, and meeting the caloric expenditures of the day. If you're an athlete that's in a position that needs to lose body fat or would like to lose body fat, that makes sense and is healthy. The only tweak you make to this approach is you remove the post-workout window. So think about the logic that I mentioned before where we have that post-workout window there to replace that last 25% of the expenditure. So if I remove that, that 25% that I didn't replace creates the caloric deficit to reduce body fat. So just to summarize here, if you're an athlete that is in a position to lose body fat, remove the post-workout window, everything else remains the same. We definitely do not mess with our during workout fueling because that's the one thing that allows us to, to train hard and allows us to practice the number one limiter in long course racing, which is fueling. So we never mess with that. We just remove the post-workout window. So we have our recovery drink and then go right back to the core foods. And it's, it's that simple. Okay, perfect. So then what about uh, in-training fueling? How do you approach that at Core Diet? Yeah, it's, um, you know, we've just to provide a little bit of backdrop here, we've worked with probably two to 3000 athletes developing detailed race fueling plans. So we have seen everything you could possibly imagine from high sweat rate people, low sweat rate people, to high salt sweaters, low salt sweaters, you name it. You know, I've probably worked with somewhere in the vicinity of 70 professional triathletes on their race fueling. And um, I can tell you right now that it is the number one limiter in long course racing, which which is a sin to me because athletes spend 
tons of time away from their families, making sacrifices, spending tens of thousands of dollars on gear, and then they go to that big race that they do once a year and they're limited by nutrition. Just awful. It's so it's so easy to fix. It's something that you have 100% control over as an athlete, and uh, it just amazes me that it's still such a primary limiter. So I just wanted to say that up front. How do we approach it? We, we gener- the biggest changes we make with athletes fueling are to make sure that they're getting enough fluid and sodium. Most athletes um, drastically underestimate the requirements in those two areas. You know, what's an easy way for an athlete that's racing a half Ironman event or an Ironman event to make sure that they're drinking enough? It's pretty simple. You need to make sure you pee at least once in half Ironman on the bike and you need to make sure you pee at least twice in Ironman on the bike. If you don't do those two things in those races, then you are not going to perform to your potential, period. That's pretty great advice. And a lot of the things that I hear here on the podcast are things that, while great, there are things that, you know, they're well known and you've heard them before. But this is a really gold nugget of information that I've never heard before. So, so I just wanted to chime in. And yeah, that was a great tip. Yeah, no worries. And, um, you know, an athlete can obviously figure out their sweat rate pretty easily. You know, you see athletes that don't look at this at all. And then you see other athletes who way overcomplicate it. They think they need to go to a lab to find out their sweat rate. I mean, if you've done a few races, you could very quickly figure out, okay, I had three bottles on the bike and this half Ironman, it was 70 degrees out. I had five bottles on the bike and this half Ironman, it was 90 degrees out. Neither one of those I peed in. So therefore I should probably try four bottles next time I do a 70 degree race. Um, And it's that simple. So everything kind of stems from that. So the next thing that I'll kind of layer on top of that is that as long as I'm meeting those fluid requirements and utilizing a sport drink that has proper sodium content, then I will probably check the sodium box as well. The number of athletes that require additional sodium supplementation that are already using a good quality sport drink with proper sodium content and... What is proper sodium content in this context? Yep, five to 600 milligrams per 24 ounces. So the ideal sport drink here should have anywhere between 42 and 52 grams of carbohydrate per 24 ounces, um, which standard bike bottle size, five to 600 milligrams of sodium. And that's kind of the golden rule right there. And then if you just simply drink that sport drink, commensurate with the sweat rate, utilizing the P guidelines that I just gave, you're probably going to take care of the sodium requirements as well. See, athletes make mistakes here by A, not drinking enough. Therefore, they are dehydrated and not providing enough sodium. Or they may drink enough but use the the improper sodium content sport drink and therefore don't get enough sodium. So, you know, you could run the math on this really quick. Let's say most athletes are drinking two or three bottles on the bike in half Ironman, yet their sweat rate requires four to five. So now they're like three bottles short on the bike. Well, if each bottle is supposed to have five to 600 milligrams of sodium, they're now short 2,000 milligrams of sodium just on the bike. Then they go ahead and grab a sodium supplement that has 80 milligrams per capsule. They take three or four of those and they think they they checked the sodium box. They're not even close. I mean, you know, they're still 1,700 milligrams shy. So you could see how quickly these deficits add up. And, you know, the other mistake people make is then they go and drink water on the bike. Are you nuts? You're providing something that doesn't 
supply any of the carbohydrate you need and none of the sodium that you need. So a big cardinal rule for us for the last you know 10 plus years when we've been doing race fueling plans is we never, ever, ever recommend an athlete drinks water. You drink sport drink in the proper sodium concentration all the time. Every training session, every race day, it just needs to become the norm. We do not want to supply water because water is a blank. It puts us on the blood sugar roller coaster. And the reality is when you're dehydrated as an athlete and you get put in the med tent, if they injected water into your veins, you would die. And that's a fact. They, they actually inject the sodium and, you know, dextrose solution, glucose solution. So it's exactly what a sport drink is, you know, just to provide some, some background to that a bit. Yeah. And uh, that's, uh, let's dig a little bit deeper on that. So you advocate only training with, or always training with sports drinks and sports drinks only, not, not water. So, so that's going to be a huge shock, I would imagine for many listeners. So, so let's uncover that a, a bit more. Is that, does that apply to all training sessions or is it just hard workouts or long workouts or are there any, any sort of exceptions to that rule? It's every, no, there's no exceptions. It's every single workout, no matter what. The only exception, which isn't even really exception, is just a different situation, is if you're dealing with an athlete who only does sprint distance racing or Olympic distance racing. The likelihood that race fueling is going to be a limiter at those race distances is much lower just because the onboard fuel source has enough of a reservoir to cover the race almost that you don't need to be so specific. As soon as you go beyond that, it's a must. And why is that? It's it's quite simple. Most athletes, their primary limiter on race day is their ability to handle what their body requires. And athletes don't seem to get that. They think just because their body requires a certain amount of carbohydrate, a certain amount of sodium, certain amount of fluid that they're magically just going to be able to handle it. And nothing could be further from the truth. Those athletes that have a higher sweat rate, many not many times need to spend a year training their gut to actually be able to handle what their body requires. So on the extreme end, you know, I've worked with athletes and, you know, athletes at a very high level that have required in a race like Kona, 24 to 26 bottles. I even had an athlete at Ironman Texas one year who drank 25 bottles on the bike, full 24 ounce bottles of sport drink and didn't pee. His sweat rate was so severe that he had no chance. So he had trained himself over many years to actually be able to handle that. See, most athletes don't even get that far. So when you switch an athlete from that's accustomed to drinking water to exclusively sport drink, first thing they do is, is throw a tantrum. Once they get over that and they push on it a bit more, you need to get them to practice it over multiple weeks exclusively. It usually takes three to four weeks to get athletes to the point where they can handle exclusively sport drink at a rate that's commensurate with their sweat rate, which is where the real value is. Now suddenly you've removed nutrition as a limiter on race day, but most athletes arrive on the starting line unfortunately in a position they don't even know it where they can't handle what their body requires it doesn't matter what their training is it doesn't matter how fit they are none of it matters because they're already on the starting line in a position where they can't handle what their body requires so that's what we try to avoid yeah and that, that makes total sense it's uh, like you wouldn't go run a marathon without building up your your running volume your long runs to to the distance that you where you know that you can handle that those few extra miles that you maybe didn't cover in the long run but getting very close and then but but then the difference between what what you would do in training for nutrition and and an ironman race that is uh those are like light years apart as you say for many i would imagine so i am one of those who is concentrating on on sprint and olympic distance races so this doesn't exactly apply to me but 
but uh, but yeah, it's it makes total sense. And when you mentioned that you need to you need to practice, obviously, then at the sweat rate that you have, how do you propose that people go and find their sweat rate? Is it just a sweat test, like weighing yourself before and after workout, or do you have any other methods? No, I mean honestly, the best method is the real world method that I mentioned before. Yeah. You know, look at a race that you've done, how many bottles you had on the bike, and how many times you peed, and what the condition was. You know, if if uh, like I said, if you if you know you've drank you know three bottles let's say an 80 degree 70.3 race and you didn't pee well that's a good starting point you know you need at least four or five bottles and you could very start quickly start to hone in on that you know if in training you're doing a three-hour bike ride you should pee at least once during that ride if you haven't then you probably need to drink more and again it needs to be a sport drink with the proper solution and that's kind of the starting point of building a race fueling plan you figure out the sweat rate you supply or you know fluid and commensurate with the sweat rate with a sport drink that has that 42 to 52 grams of carbohydrate 500 600 milligrams of sodium and then you figure out based on your size how much carbohydrate you actually need per hour a lot of that's going to be supplied by the sport drink for starters anything else that's required is going to come in mostly through gels with proper sodium content and how do you figure out how many how much carbs you need per hour based on your body size yeah, I mean, there's a there's a pretty simple ratio that that I use. You know, a lot of information about exact quantities in the carbohydrate load, exact quantities in the race morning breakfast, the exact quantities on race day. I have in the book, so you can grab it there on Amazon if you're interested, or you can go to USA Triathlon. You know, I've recorded several webinars there that cover this topic. That just has a lot more detail than we have time to go over here on those specific ratios. Okay, perfect. And uh, yeah, I was looking at the book on Amazon, and, and it has a lot of reviews uh, for the short time it's been out, and uh, all of them seem to be five stars, except one four stars. So I'm sure that it, I haven't uh, actually grabbed it myself, but I'm I'm definitely going to, because it looks very very interesting and useful. All right, so that covers it for training and also partially racing, because we seem to have gone through that as well to some extent. Or is there anything else that we need to add to to that component? The only other thing I'd add is, you know, the carbohydrate load is also somewhat important. You know, we generally like to have the carbohydrate load be primarily the day before the event for any race that's Olympic distance or longer. You know, that carbohydrate load is somewhere to the tune of 10 times the athlete's body weight in kilograms in terms of grams of carbohydrate. And we like to get 50% of that quantity in before noon the day before and then taper the back half of the day. Largest meal is always at breakfast the day before the race. And in general, we stay away from fat and protein on that day and stick with foods that are very bland, totally opposite of the core diet foods that I talked about before, because they contain fat, fiber, and protein, things we want to avoid as part of the carbohydrate load. The whole idea here is to wake up on race morning in a position to handle the race morning breakfast and the race day fuel. So that's why we taper things the back half of the day. That's why we stay away from those fat, fibers, and protein. So that's kind of... One other detail, and then of course the race morning breakfast itself, we generally like to have that somewhere between two and a half and three and a half hours before the event. Again, we stay away from significant quantities of fat and fiber. We do supply a little bit of protein in the form of either a whey protein powder or even egg whites, somewhere between 15 and 20 grams. We're big on using unsweetened applesauce as part of the carbohydrate content in that race morning breakfast. Tends to do a good job kind of cleaning the system out, for lack of a better term, and also supplies good quality carbohydrate and fluid content. So, mm, Perfect. That sums it up perfectly. I have a couple of, uh, not random, but uh, sl slightly off-topic questions that I want to go into as well before we wrap it up. But one is... Uh, 
Metabolic efficiency is a very fashionable or fashionable term these days and you have written a blog post about that that I, I was looking at and or reading through I should say and and can you just uh, give us a quick overview on, on your take on metabolic efficiency and I think especially as it relates to, to low carb diets? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think just from everything we've gone over so far, the listeners probably realize that I'm not an advocate of this approach. I could walk through very quickly the pros and cons from both a day-to-day nutrition standpoint and race fueling standpoint. Please do. Um, yeah, for those for those listeners that don't know what this means, metabolic efficiency, it's to sum it up and keep it simple, it's it's very simply the approach of trying to train an athlete to be able to operate or exercise utilizing more fat than carbohydrate. And the theory is that you will then therefore be more efficient, require less fuel, not have to carry as much, so on and so forth. The reality is that most triathletes are so stressed their endocrine system and adrenals are already overstressed. They're drinking tremendous amounts of caffeine on a daily basis to get through their workouts. They're usually lacking sleep. They're under work stress, financial stress, and other stress. So the general approach that most people take to trying to achieve so-called metabolic efficiency is to not eat during many of their workouts, some of their workouts, right? To promote metabolic efficiencies, if you will. So for these athletes, that approach is almost a death sentence to their system because they're already overstressed. So now we're taking an already overstressed system and applying more stress to it by not feeding it. Um, so quite simply, that's a, a silly thing to do as a, as a typical triathlete, right? If I then also look at the triathlete who has very low muscle content and that low lean BMI that I talked about before where strength may be a limiter already, now not eating is even worse because the body's going to rip through muscle content um, as a way to fuel itself. So that strength limiter is going to get worse. Okay, so that that's kind of the, the cons on the um, on kind of the day to day nutrition side of things. When I look at the fueling side of things, I like to talk about a concept called the fueling window. So the fueling window is really the difference between what your body can handle on race day, meaning how, how well you've trained it to handle fuels, and then what your body requires. So with the approach that I've outlined here today, you train the body every single day to handle more and more fuel. Sure, because of that, you may require a little bit more fuel, but the reality is the rate at which you've trained your system to handle more is much larger than what your body requires. Therefore, your your window of insurance, if you will, or fueling window is very large. That's what you want as you're sitting on a starting line as an athlete. Athletes who have attempted to take a metabolic efficiency approach for a long course triathlon, nine times out of 10, end up from a race fueling perspective on the starting line, sure, in a place where they don't need as much, but the rate at which they've detrained their system to handle fuels is a lot larger um, the, the rate at which they've detrained themselves is a lot larger than that, that small reduction in what they require. And many times end up with a negative window, meaning they, they're in a position where, sure, they don't need as much, but the amount they can handle is still way less than what they require, therefore in not a good position. So if I review all that, I say, okay, I took a stressed out triathlete who already has probably rough adrenal system and, and hormonal system. I've added more stress, trying to create something called metabolic efficiency, which may or may not even exist. I've probably detrained their ability to handle fuels and therefore less likely to be able to perform on race day. It's it's a lose-lose all around and the reality is the research on the benefits of metabolic efficiency is very shaky at best. So to me, the whole thing has been more of a money-making scheme for those that promote it than anything. Any of the athletes that I've seen who have attempted it, who come to us for help, are in a position where they have 
totally failed on race day after training for six months because they've attempted to do this. They've read it somewhere or something like that, like most fads. So we stay in the middle. We stay very reasonable. And uh, we've taken the same approach for over 10 years. You can put logic next to it and uh, really no magic there. And, and obviously athletes have done very well with it. You know, our organization, again, qualified 37 athletes to Kona just last year. I would say one of the primary reasons why we're able to do that is very detailed race fueling, utilizing all the methods that I've talked about here. That's how our top level pros fuel. The guys win in Ironmans every week. You know, th those are the guys that are, are taking a very reasonable approach like this. Yeah, and you mentioned as well on your website that a lot of that success comes down to running really well over the marathon in, in the Ironman. And, and that's obviously a lot of that has got, got to do with race fueling because uh, a lot of the pros are capable of running really fast marathons, but, but that fueling is, is limiting them. They're running out of energy or because they haven't, I guess, trained themselves to handle enough, as you have been talking about. What about the second random topic? You are an engineer, as you said, and you are very quantitative in your approach uh, so is there anything in triathlon or in nutrition that uh, you're excited about at the moment related to new technology or or anything new training protocols science what have you well, that's a good question um you know just to to your points i mean sure i'm i'm definitely a very quantitative guy by background but the reality is most of the athletes i work with are that's not where their limiters are most athletes at a high level they're their limiters are really in sports psychology. So 90% of the work that I do is, is with sports psychology, which has no numbers involved whatsoever, right? You know, those are kind of the two bookends of, of what I do. But in terms of approaches or technology, you know, I'm a numbers guy, but I, I don't keep up with the technology. It's just not where I feel my time is best spent. I kind of wait for new technology to get vetted out by others and solid and then adopt it. The latest stuff I've been looking at, honestly, is around um, cycling cadence and how to use that to address athlete limiters. And uh, instead of getting into the argument of, uh, you know, athletes should be at this or athletes should be at that, the reality is there's probably a place where athletes should be that uh, is specific to them and how do we address that? So I've been working on a couple of projects to implement throughout our coaching organization to have it be repeatable on, okay, athlete has limiter X and therefore this is the cadence maybe they should utilize for these types of workouts to address that limiter. And if you look into cadence, there's, you know, conflicting and there's actually some pretty good research out there if you look around enough kind of on optimal pedaling cadence. And it's a really interesting topic just because I think triathletes tend to become more aerobically efficient. The robustness of their aerobic engine is probably a lot bigger than most other endurance athletes just because of the quantity of endurance exercise that goes through them. Therefore, many times I think the engine can run a little bit more efficient and further than their peripheral system. So when you look at the triathlete cycling, the way that they should treat cadence to address that situation maybe should be quite a bit different than the cyclist who isn't swimming or running, developing the aerobic engine as far as the triathlete will. So but yeah, without spending a whole nother podcast going into it, that's kind of been my latest uh, little project. Yeah, that's cool. So yeah, I remember seeing a study recently that came out on comparing 60 RPM versus 90 RPM for a for a time trial. I don't remember how long it was, but uh, in cycling and the, the 60 RPM was significantly better than the 90 RPM in that small study. It wasn't extremely big, but but it was still something that that went against what is uh, kind of touted out as as the 
norm which you you hear people all the time saying that you must pedal at between 85 to 95 rpm and it's probably not as, as simple as that did you have a comment on that no yeah i agree like like everything in triathlon there's no one size fits all as soon as you hear someone say that um they're they they i lose credibility in what they're saying because mm. there's no one size fits all for anything in triathlon everything is just very specific to the athlete their limiters where they are in the season what limiters you're trying to address, so on and so forth. So, Yeah. Finally, I just have three very short rapid-fire questions for you. So what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon? Ooh, that's a good question. I used to have a bunch. I'm just so busy these days. I have a tough time looking after new stuff. I mean, I just – honestly, I just fish around. You, you see stuff pop up on social media, which of course can be dangerous, and you hear that all the time too. But you click on the stuff and you read it, and you got to put it through your own filter. And many times there's a nugget or two in something that you haven't thought of or a different way to think of it. And, and honestly, these days, that's that's most of what I do, and it leads you to different places, you know? Mm. Do you have a, any book or something for sports psychology that you mentioned earlier that you like? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's some there's some really good uh, resources out there. But but honestly, the USOC sports psychology references are the are the best that I am aware of or have utilized. I've utilized them for years. The USOC created two sports psychology references after an Olympics. Maybe it was 2008. I don't I don't remember exactly which one it was when they had surveyed their athletes in all sports, this isn't just triathlon, they said, what was the number one, or what was the number one thing that you felt the least prepared for as you went into the Olympics? And the overwhelming answer to that question was, we didn't feel we were prepared mentally. So following that, USOC put together a major initiative to create resources for both the coach and the athlete. So they're kind of a dovetailed two book series, one for the coach, one for the athlete. Um, They're just really hard to get a hold of. You have to contact the USOC directly to get those, but they are great resource. Okay, cool. I also like uh, James or Jim Lore. Um, his resources over the years have been really strong. He's got a couple of books out there that are great reads on sports psychology. Mm, okay. What's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? Favorite piece of gear or equipment? Boy, these are good questions. I mean, you know, obviously heart rate monitor is an invaluable tool. So if I had to pick a favorite just by default, <laughs> it's probably going to be the heart rate monitor between training on race day and uh, training and race day approaches if you know how to use a heart rate monitor and take things in context it's just such a pow- powerful piece of gear i don't i think it would be difficult to 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 do it without that at, at least especially when you're working as a coach with athletes remotely sorry for not making this rapid fire but but i gotta gotta make a follow-up question on this so why do you prefer or do you prefer heart rate to power or pace in cycling and and running since you answer heart rate monitors or or do you use them both because i've been less and less actually using heart rate recently and becoming less and less interested in them just because i i find that it's so limiting but uh i may be missing something and in that case i'm very curious to know Yeah, no, it's just like my previous response. There's no one answer. I mean, when it comes down to it, if you're utilizing pace, power, or heart rate to dictate a training load as a coach or as an athlete to your own training, the reality is your your body doesn't know the difference, right? It's just the training load. So whatever, whatever you think you can apply the intended training load with the most accurate way as either a coach or athlete is the right answer at that point for that person. 
So we utilize heart rate, power, pace for sure. Uh, sometimes we utilize heart rate to dictate the training load if it's below lactate threshold, but then we're certainly collecting pace and power as a metric on how the athlete is improving. Usually we very rarely ever utilize heart rate beyond threshold. We focus more on pace and power targets just because it becomes a little bit more impractical to utilize heart rate to dictate that. But, but like I said, regardless, uh, it, it's really not a discussion of this one's better or this one's worse. It's about utilizing the various tools you have as an athlete or coach to get the intended results. So that's kind of where we're at. And I, you know, I just feel the heart rate monitor, again, if you can wrap it in the right context, you know how to use it as a coach and an athlete, it's probably the most valuable tool. Do I want to give up a power meter with that and give up a GPS for pace? No, no way. I, I still want those two. But um, if I had to choose one, I'd want to have the heart rate monitor. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great answer. Finally, what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Personal habit, to-do lists, no question. Um, you know, I, I wake up every day and my first thing that I do is I add to my to-do list. And I usually pick five or six items that are the most critical on my to-do list and I put a star next to them. And those are the ones that I plan to get done that day. So every day is a process of adding to that to-do list, starring items, and then removing the ones that I finish that are starred. So you know, I think the common mistake is people have to-do lists either on a daily basis or over a chronic basis that are just too long. Therefore, they always have a sense of failure. So by using the stars, it allows you to create a doable goal for the day and you feel a lot more accomplished when you finish those at the end of the day. Okay, thank you so much, Jesse, for your time. You have been very generous with it. We have been going on for quite a bit longer than I expected, but it's been so much good stuff that it was great to be able to to dig deep. And I know that you have to go now. So uh, to all the listeners, this has been Jesse Kropelnicki from QT2 System. Thank you, Jesse, for coming on the show. No problem. I just want to mention one other thing that I didn't mention. I've also been involved in a recent project uh, called the Fieldwork uh, Nutrition Primo Smoothie. And uh, we created a nutrition product that fit the principles of the core diet and also provided nutrient density that we many times see deficient in endurance athletes. But you can check it out, Google Fieldwork Nutrition Smoothie. We could send you a sample, try some. It's a great just day-to-day -day meal replacement product between workout sessions. We felt the endurance world hasn't really had a product like that and uh, there's kind of a need for it. So check it out if you get a chance. Appreciate yeah, we'll have it in the show notes as well as all the other ways to, to connect with you. I'm sorry, I completely forgot to ask about those ways, but it will all be linked up in the show notes. Okay, thank you, Jesse. Talk to you later. All right, hope that you enjoyed that interview and found it as valuable as I did. I gotta say, it's one of the interviews that I've done to date with the most really new insights and, and aha moments for me so far. And uh, yeah, that P-tip especially was uh, something that was incredibly useful and also a bit uh, a bit hilarious, but uh, it's completely logical uh, when when you think about it. it just, uh, just I was kind of a bit surprised when hearing it, I have to admit. But that's all good. You always have to keep learning. That's, uh, that's the point of this podcast, not just for you as the listeners, but for me as well as the podcast host. That's uh, one of the benefits of being a podcast host, I guess. And uh, yeah, I want to uh, just emphasize to you that uh, this may sound very shocking to you, very, very different from what you've been used to doing, but go and have another listen and really try to think it through, because I think that it makes a heck of a lot of sense to, to apply this approach 
to your half Ironman or, or Ironman uh, training, because that's where fueling is really going to be a limiter. This doesn't necessarily apply as much as Jesse said if you're a sprinter Olympic distance triathlete, but for long distance triathletes, fueling is the fourth discipline, and the fourth doesn't mean that it's any less important than any of the other three. It's equally important because you will run out of your, your stored uh, glycogen in your body, so you have to be able to take on external fuel in those races. That's just the way it is. And uh, that's why I encourage you to, if you aren't totally convinced, listen to this episode again and really, really try to think through the arguments for doing it versus not doing it. Because uh, I'm sure, absolutely sure that this works. And the proof is in the uh, in the athletes that, that Jesse and his team has been working with. So they've had so many great results, great athletes and great marathons as we mentioned in the interview as well, that uh, they have got to be doing something right. And uh, if you want any more info, of course, the show notes on thattriathlonshow.com will be full of uh, all the important information that we talked about and all the links to resources mentioned and uh, Jesse's websites and how to connect with him. But thecorediet.com and the book, The Endurance Training Diet and Cookbook on Amazon, for example, are the two main places as it pertains to this interview. I think that's about it. Uh, we have been going on for a long time. So uh, remember to go to the show notes, thattriathlonshow.com. Send me your emails with questions to michael at scientifictriathlon.com. That's Michael with a K. Again, this interview arose from a lot of questions about how to fuel your Ironman races and seeing that just in my inbox that a lot of you guys are having issues with with that fueling part and that is that is something that is a challenge so hope this helps all right in the meantime until the next episode i hope that you as always keep training smart and keep loving triathlon <laughs>